Hi, and welcome to Bread. Twice a year, we dedicate two services to the vision of bread and how we can support the work of the church with our resources. Jesus spoke more about money than anything else other than the kingdom of God. He knew how important an issue it is. Unfortunately, the church hasn't always done a great job reflecting his teaching and his practices when it comes to how Christians should treat our finances. In this series, we want to get back to a Jesus-centered appreciation of money so that we might be the open, generous people God calls us to be, using our resources for eternal good and building the kingdom of heaven right here and now in Los Angeles. Amen. Hello, welcome everyone. Uh, Very warm welcome if you're here for the first time, if you're just um, checking us out. It's good to have you uh, with us every Twice a year, uh, we do a couple of talks um, based on uh, money, on the vision of the church, on generosity, what it means to treat money uh, as God would have us. Uh, And uh, this, you'll be pleased to know, is the first of one of those. That's what you were hoping for, a money talk. Now, if you are a guest or a visitor, um, please could you just uh, not feel like this applies to you? Hopefully it will be interesting. Uh, but you can just kind of let it wash over you. But if you'd like to join the church, you are very welcome to join the church. And if you do join the church, why not throw yourself into it? Churches are a bit like breakfast cereals. You find one that you like, then you stick with it. Go with it. It's not more complicated than that. Um, But you do need to find one. You do want to commit to one. Um, If you find a perfect one, don't join it. You will ruin it. Find one more at your level, right? A non-perfect one. but give yourself to it. So, um, this is really for those who say that bread is their home church. This is their church. Um, What's your relationship like with money? A couple of months ago, Nature magazine published some research that had been conducted on thousands of people across um, 33 or so different countries about how much money people would want to have if they could suddenly magically win the lottery. The options range from you could win a $10,000 lottery, you could win a $100,000, $1 million, $10 million, $100 million, all the way up to $100 billion. Pick your lottery, you can win it. You can play this little game with yourself now. Perhaps surprisingly, the majority of people did not choose the maximum amount. In fact, the most common response was, by a long way, $10 million. That's what most people wanted. In a few countries, actually, the most common response was $1 million. That was it. So it turns out that our humanity, on the whole, does not have unlimited wants. That is, apart from the people in just one country. Only one country. In one country, the vast majority of respondents didn't think that 10 million was enough. In this one particular country, they went for at least 100 million, with the most common answer being 100 billion dollars. Do you want to guess what that country is? It was not the UK. (laughs) Now, of course, wanting to have more money doesn't automatically mean necessarily being greedy. Having more also allows us to give more. But it did make me recall a famous quote from uh, J.D. Rockefeller, which I always quote uh, during these talks because I like it so much. He was an American business magnate at the kind of turn of the century, probably by... um, modern standards, still, and adjusting for inflation, the most uh, wealthy person that's ever lived. Eat your heart out, Elon. 
Uh, Rockefeller was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. There's been times in my life when I really haven't worried that much about money, haven't thought about it. I would say that as I've had more money, my worries about it have grown. I don't know if you relate. If I'm honest, I think I prob probably would always say I just need a little bit, just a little bit more. Not, not loads, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. Jim Carrey said once, I wish everyone could get rich and famous so they'd see it wasn't the answer to anything. Now, research actually shows that when people earn more than something like 60 to 75,000, it might be a bit more now, this is a few years old, but uh, over that level, their emotional and uh, life satisfaction levels don't actually get any better. In fact, some of them tend to decline. And yet, that little voice inside exists, doesn't it? Just a little bit more, and then we'll be happy. Then I'll be secure. Then I will have made something of my life. Now, Jesus spoke about money more than any other subject other than the kingdom of God. Not sex, not forgiveness, not love, not worship, but money. Why? Because he understood quite how powerful this thing is. He called money a god, in fact. Such is its ability to exert control over us, to demand our worship, to make us do things that we wouldn't normally do, that it is like a god, it is that powerful because it can be used very powerfully in lots of different ways. Actually, some ways destructively, but other ways highly, highly productively. But, Jesus says, you can only serve one God. You cannot serve both God and money. And his pitch to us, as it is to all people, is, I'm the real one. I am the true one. And what I will give you if you follow me is real security, real meaning, real joy. These things that money seems to promise us, but only ever deliver illusionary versions of. Um, we were fortunate enough to own our own house when we were living in London, and we moved here and we rented it out, and then after a couple of years, we felt like it was the time to sell. It really wasn't the time to sell, but we felt like it was the time to sell. And we sold the house, and uh, after a long protracted thing, uh, we managed to um, buy a place here. But after selling the house, both Hannah and I were praying, and we felt like God say, I want you to give some of the proportion of the proceeds away. And we thought, yes, that's a good thing to do. We were delighted to do this. This has been an amazing gift from God. Uh, let us give some of it away. And we actually knew some people who could really do with the money, who uh, were friends of ours at the time, and we thought, okay, let's, let's give it to them. And it was quite a large proportion of money. It was a significant amount. We were all very happy to do it. And then it came to writing the check. And all of a sudden, my hand wouldn't quite work. <laughs> And I, I genuinely, I'm just letting you in on this, I thought about what if I do the wrong date so that it bounces? Because in some ways, then I would have kind of given the money, but also I wouldn't have like, given actually, actually the money. Such is the power to stop us from doing something that actually we want to do, because it's like a god. Now, we did give the money, uh, and I was delighted to do that. But for this and next week, I want to help us be free to treat money not like God's, but as Jesus intended. Something we can hold lightly to with open, generous hands and use it for the good of his kingdom. 
So this week we will consider an Old Testament passage about money, next week a New Testament one. In the Old Testament, God chooses Abraham and all his descendants to be his people. And with them, he establishes a covenant, a special relationship where he, the only true God, will be theirs and they will be his. It was a promise. So, as the New Testament writers make clear, the Israelites of the past were not made right with God because they kept the law, like they fulfilled some sort of obligation. Rather, they were made right with him because he had chosen them and they had responded in faith. It's always faith that, as we say, is the magic with God. They trusted in the promise that he was actually theirs and they were his. So the law did not function as this sort of means to be one with God. Rather, it was like a boundary marker. It was given to them to mark them out, to single them out. You are the people and you have the law. You also have the temple. You also have the land. This is yours because you're mine. So to fulfill the law was simply to be who they already were. It didn't make them right with God, which is a common misunderstanding. Nevertheless, sorry, I didn't know where I was. Nevertheless, throughout the Old Testament, we see that there is a degree of transactional element to the law. There is the threat that if the people of God fail to be who they are called to be, fail to be the law keepers that they're supposed to be, then the covenant will be broken. And so when it comes to the Old Testament understanding of money, there is an element, an element to it of cause and effect. If the people of God give to the Lord as he has directed them, then he will provide for them in terms of protection, fertility, crops, defense against their enemies, etc., etc. In fact, as we've been looking at in Genesis, if the people of God give to God as he has directed them, then the whole cosmos will operate as it's supposed to. And this was done in the Old Testament through the concept of a tithe. Ten percent of money or produce given would be to given back to God. Now, the tithe was given specifically to the Levites, who are like the priestly class, uh, and they didn't work with their hands, and they weren't allowed to own property. So their job was to um, keep Israel close to God through worship and sacrifices and things like that. Uh, but they weren't able to support themselves, hence the tithe supported them. And if the cause and effect relationship was maintained, then the presence of God would not depart the temple, and the universe would operate as it's supposed to. So, this is the background for this morning's passage, which comes from the very last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. This is chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi delivering his prophecy to ancient Israel. I will send my messenger, says Malachi, of God, who will prepare the way before me. Then, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years." So, I will come to put you on trial. This is where it gets a bit gnarly. I will qu be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of the, their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, 
says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So, this morning I want to look at one thing that never applied, but has often been applied by Christians from a misunderstanding of it in the Old Testament understanding of money, first thing. One thing that continues to apply, and thirdly, one thing that did not apply uh, sorry, that did apply, but no longer applies to us, and we must resist. Firstly, one thing that applied, that never applied, but has been applied by Christians from a misunderstanding of the Old Testament understanding of money. Despite what you may have heard, wealth is not a sign of God's blessing. Wealth is not a sign of God's blessing. If you Google, which is what I did this morning, books about God wanting you to be rich. Here are some of the titles. God wants you to be rich. God wants you rich. God wants to make you rich. God wants you happy and rich. God wants you rich, the scandalous truth. Don't give up. God wants you to be rich. Does God want you to be rich? Yes. Biblical principles for guaranteed wealth which amazingly is not number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It really should be. I mean, guaranteed wealth. And my personal favorite, why God wants you rich and the government wants you poor. <laughs> now, I know I'm poking fun at these sorts of things, but in truth, it's very serious. Sadly, many Christians have been influenced and manipulated by the sort of teaching that says, give in order to receive. God is like some sort of celestial slot machine, put in enough coins, and one day you will get the huge payday that you deserve. But it rests on some very selective reading of the Bible. Firstly, the idea of blessing throughout the Bible is first and foremost connected to the presence of God. Anything else that comes is secondary. Verse 7, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. This is the crux of the whole thing. You have lost me. You need me back. Verse 3, suddenly the Lord, who you are seeking, will return to his temple. This is reflected throughout Scripture. As we saw in our recent series on Genesis, the problem for Adam and Eve is not that they don't have an abundance. They do. They have everything. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. The problem is a disconnection an independence from their creator. And that's why everything has gone wrong. To be blessed, as Jesus famously points out over and over and over again in his Sermon on the Mount, is to have the presence of God with you, whoever you are, because Jesus is here to bring it. 
So it doesn't matter whether you are mourning, whether you are poor in spirit, whether you are weak, whether you are lowly, you are blessed because Jesus has come to turn everything upside down for everyone, particularly those whom people have discarded because they don't look like the wealthy people that they think they should look like. Jesus is not interested. He said, I am here and you are blessed because I am turning the world upside down for every single one of you. When Jesus meets the rich young ruler, this man asks him, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, "Um, what are the main two commandments? He says, I've done both of those. And he says, okay, well, go away. And it says, Jesus looked on him and loved him, which I've always liked. He looked on him and loved him and said, go away and sell all your money, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And the man goes away sad because he loved money. The problem was not the money. The problem was the love. Because ultimately, in God's economy, blessing is about love for and love from and relationship to and connection with our God. Everything else is secondary. Which is not to say that poverty is somehow a more noble or holy state. It is not. Ultimately, the heaven of God's kingdom will be a place of abundance and joy. Verse 10. See, if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. But we have to hold together the tension between God's kingdom being now and not yet. We pray for healing because in God's kingdom, healing is a reality. But this side of heaven, not everyone is healed. Suffering is real. We will all die. Similarly, God wants us to enjoy an abundance of life, all the beauty and riches of his heaven. But this side of heaven, our primary responsibility is seeking his presence, which we will have forever and ever and ever when we get there, and using the resources that we are given not to, verse 5, defraud laborers of their wages, oppress the widows and the fatherless, or deprive the foreigners amongst you of justice. So, Wealth is not a sign of God's blessing. After all, do you know someone who was very, very rich? Adolf. He was worth about five billion when he died. Do you know someone who was very, very poor? Jesus of Nazareth. Had nothing. Ultimately, our financial status in God's eyes really is neither here nor there. Do not feel guilty if you have lots of money. Do not feel resentful if you don't. Let's just admit, actually, that all of us, even those who consider themselves not very well off, in global terms, if we can afford to go down the street and pay $4 for a coffee, we are in the top echelons of worldwide wealth. But ultimately, our status doesn't really matter because his presence is what we're really after. And and this is the second point that applies all the time. All the money is God's anyway. Verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Now, this is a sort of piece of high rhetoric. The answer, of course, is no. No one can rob God because, as the psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills, he says. The money in your wallet, 
the money in someone else's wallet who you really think should give it to you because you'd use it so much better than them, the money in all the banks, the money in all the countries, all of it, every single last little dime between the cushions on the sofa is the Lord's. He has it all, it's all his. We are simply custodians of it. The problem is, we don't like to believe that. Or rather, if we believe it, we find it very difficult to live like that. Such is its power. We've earned it. It's ours. We should be able to do whatever we like with it because with our hard work, it has come to us. I've told this story before. I'm sorry if you've heard it before. But um, when we were living in London, I took the kids to the park and they were playing uh, on the swings and the slide. And uh, there was a um, mother there who was particularly well-dressed, obviously wealthy, and she was having a really nice time with her little daughter. Her daughter was eating an ice cream. And they were having such a happy time, and then all of a sudden, everything changed. Because the little daughter had reached up with her ice cream hands and tried to pull the um, mother's scarf. And the mother's face suddenly changed and said, do not touch that with your sticky fingers. It's worth more than your life. And then the whole of the park just stopped. It's like the swings in mid-motion just stopped. And everyone looked at her. How exposing of our desires and where our heart's at, the sticky little fingers of children. It's mine. I've earned it. It belongs to me. Do not touch it. So how is your relationship with money and things? Symptoms of an unhealthy attitude include not being able to think about anything else, worrying about it, waking up in the middle of night, uncontrolled spending, hoarding, never thinking you've got enough, holding it tightly, never being able to contemplate the idea of actually seriously having to give some away. Surely not. But when we realize that actually none of it's ours in the first place anyway, it frees us from all the fear. There is a rivalry going on. Do we trust the Lord or do we trust the money? Letting it be his, which it is, frees us to treat it as it should be. Something of great power, but not something to control us. It's all his anyway. He's just asking for us to use it for his kingdom. And a few weeks ago, we finally gave up the uh, ghost of not having a second car. We've resisted having a second car for six years. I think we've done very well. Thank you, us. pat on the back for me. I am brilliant. Uh, but um, kids go to different schools now. They're going on play dates. We have an office where we have to drive to it. So we need two cars. There's three kids, two adults. We need two cars. I really didn't want to buy a new car. I love cars. I just didn't want to buy one. Our history with cars is awful. We, if you want to know a bad car, look at something that we've bought. They all go wrong. We also didn't, I, I don't like the idea of spending any money on anything that depreciates. I'm really tight like that. I like things that appreciate. I don't like things that depreciate. So I didn't want to buy a car because it just feels like it just, it just, it's like a money drain. Um, but 
I'd spent weeks, and Hannah was going, pulling her hair out, because I was spent weeks. She said, why don't you just go to CarMax and buy a car? And I was like, because I've got to get a really good deal. But it was really stressing me out, and we had a very small budget. Anyway, I woke up one night, in the middle of the night, and realized I, I was pretty anxious about this. So I asked God, um, no, I didn't, I didn't ask God anything. I felt like God said to me, have you asked me to get involved? And I realized, nope, I have not. I have not asked you to be involved at all. I've asked myself to be involved because I think I can do it and it's really stressing me out. He said, why don't you ask me to be involved? So I said, God, would you actually just provide a car? I'm sure you can do that. And suddenly, all the relief flooded through my body. All the weight came off. I thought, we're doing this together. This is going to be great. I went and looked on OfferUp. There was a car that's actually my ideal car, my perfect car. I really wanted this car. I just knew it was way out of my budget. And I found this car on OfferUp. And it was ridiculously low priced. I thought it can't be real. So I offered a little bit more than it was priced at. Went down to San Clemente. It was half our budget. Half our budget. Went down to San Clemente, uh, which was an experience. And, um, and then we drove around. I talked to the guy. I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, that's interesting. I used to go to church. I hate church. Um, uh, and we talked a lot about that. Uh, and then I said, um, oh, I really like the car. Um, is this really the price? And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll take another $300 off just because it's you. Uh, so I bought a car for $2,000. It's amazing. It's my perfect car. The point is not that God provided the car. The point is when we include God in it, when we include him in it, when he becomes our focus, all the worry and stress can fall by the wayside. Four weeks running, still fine. $2,000. I took it to a mechanic, actually, who's like a, a Volvo specialist. And he said, did you steal this car? And he wasn't joking. He said, did you steal this car? Because I have to report you. And I was like, well, if I did, would I tell you? <laughs> we can't literally rob God because it's all his anyway. But we can metaphorically by believing it's actually ours. Not holding it lightly not giving it back to him. This is what the Israelites are guilty of here. Let us not be the same. Open hands, not tight fists. Finally, one thing that did apply but no longer applies, and we must resist. Have you heard about tithing? Have you heard about tithing in a church? Reject everything you have heard ever about tithing in a church. Tithing no longer applies. It has been fulfilled in Jesus' body. Tithing is gone, it's finished, it's kaput, it's finito, it's ended, it's done, it's dead, it's gone, it's pushing up the daisies, tithing no more. Tithing is deceased. Kill it off in your mind. Anything that you've heard about how you should tithe is not right. Do not tithe. Stop tithing. You heard it from me. I'm being serious. It's not good for you. Verse 1, I will send my messenger, says God, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. This is a prophecy first about John the Baptist preparing the way, and then it is about, of course, Jesus. The Lord himself coming to dwell in his temple. The story of the New Testament is that God has done something completely new, a completely new thing in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of all and every little part of the law. 
And if we fast forward to Jesus' teaching, more of which we will do next week, the simple call from Jesus is to be generous with money. Generous, 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 generous with money. Um, as you may know, a uh, group here um, headed up by Raul have partnered with an organization called Home for Refugees. And the idea is that this group of people will basically sort of adopt a, a refugee for a year um, and help them with anything practical to get themselves um, up on their feet. So here's a supermarket, here's how to pay rent, here's um, why you can turn right on a red light, all those sorts of things. Um, but in order to do this, they needed to raise $10,000. Um, some of which goes to the family themselves, and some of which is uh, part of the training. And I was talking with Raoul when we decided that we would do this, and we were saying, well, how, how are we going to do it? And he said, I just don't know how we're going to raise 10000 Maybe we can do some fundraisers. It's going to take months, months and months and months. Um, last week, did an announcement about it. And um, out of there, from you, comes $16,000. Just out of nowhere. Just done. Finished, straight away, done, all done. That is beautiful, wonderful generosity. More than enough. It's got nothing to do with tithing. It's got nothing to do with making sure every penny is accounted for. Rather, it is just the overflow of our heart giving to the work of the Lord. This is what we all need to be like. Thank you so much to everyone who gave. This is Jesus-like generosity. No rhyme or reason, just generosity. There is a reason that Paul speaks about the law now being written on our hearts. He doesn't talk about it being written on our brains. He doesn't talk about it being written on our hands, but on our hearts. Brains think about stuff. They make logical, reasoned decisions. They're very important, of course. Our hands are also very important. They're what we use to get stuff done. But Jesus has not written his law on our brains because his law is not a matter of believing the right thing. And he's not written it on our hands because his law is not a matter of doing the right thing, making sure we definitely do 10%. I remember when we first moved here and people would give, and there would be figures like um, $327.42. And you know that person has done a calculation to get there, and that is exactly 10%. You don't need to do that. Rather, he's written it on our hearts because his law is a matter of being the right thing. Not doing, not thinking, but being the right thing. Being a completely new, transformed creation from the inside out. How do you quantify generosity? It's impossible, isn't it? It's almost like as soon as you attempt to quantify it, it automatically stops being generosity and it starts being a piece of accounting or something like that. Jesus has broken into time and space at a moment in history and he's turned the whole cosmos upside down and he has said, I've fulfilled all the Old Testament requirements. Now follow me and be people with completely new hearts, hearts like mine. Is there anyone more generous than Jesus of Nazareth? Have his heart placed in you and see it transform you. So the expectation is never whether we give. Rather, it's that our whole lives are ones marked by generosity and we cannot help ourselves giving. Do you know, when I heard about the money given to the refugee fund, do you know what it made me feel? It made me feel like, 
I want to do something like that. Someone the other week, um, really kindly, because my iPad died, just thought about it, cared about me, and gave me an iPad. It was really kind of them. Not because they gave me an iPad. I think they can afford it. I hope so. Uh, but actually, I don't care. Uh, but it's more that they thought about it, that they cared. Generosity springs from generosity. It springs from generosity. Are you tight? I can be sometimes. Are you? Allow Jesus to change your heart. No one needs more tightness in this world. The amounts don't really matter. It's the heart that does. One person can give a huge amount of money, swingingly, proudly, self-satisfyingly, and another can give very little, generously, faithfully, and out of an overflow of their heart. And God's only really interested in one. Jesus tells a whole parable about it. And secondly, the law is written on our hearts because the heart represents the whole of us. Jesus is supremely fixated on the whole of our being, including our wallets. Martin Luther said that uh, three conversions were necessary. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the wallet. And the wallet is the most difficult, he said. It's a part of us. We can come here, we can sing the songs, we can put our trust in Jesus, but it's another thing entirely to actually say, do what we say, and put our trust in Jesus with our money. Money does have power, extraordinary power, power for good and power for evil. The best and simplest way to rob money of its destructive power is to give it away. So give it away. You'll be okay. No one's going to die. I promise you. You'll be fine. Just give it away. See it as the next step in your discipleship journey. Becoming more of the person God created you to be. If a person gets his attitude towards money right, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his life, said Billy Graham. Now, we want to be a church marked by generosity in everything that we ever do. I love the Home for Refugees story. We will do more things like this in the future because it's good for us. We have a benevolence fund set up for people who are struggling in our community. If they're struggling financially for any reason, can apply. We'd love to anonymously give you um, money if that's something that you need. Anyone can give to that fund at any point. Uh, a few um, months ago, we were doing one of these talks. And at the end of the talk, I felt like God say, uh, just give all the money away that we receive on this Sunday. Uh, so we did that. It drives our treasurer absolutely barking mad. Uh, but I love to be able to do that. We're not going to do that today, unless God says something else. Uh, but what I want to put in our minds is giving to this church. We exist solely on the donations of the congregation. We're not part of a denomination. We don't have uh, people overseas backing us or anything like that, which in many ways is wonderful. It allows us uh, a lot of freedom, but it also means it's, it's up to us to keep things going. So would you give to the day-to-day -day running of bread? Again, this is only for the home team, only for those who see themselves as part of this church. It's the staff team salaries, it's the rent, this lovely, very hot building. Uh, it's all the ministries we're involved in. We are in the process of closing our accounts for 21-22. They end at the end of this month. Um, so next week, we'll have a graphic 
a lovely little pie chart, which I won't be able to touch because I managed to get it all wrong. But we will have a pie chart of where the funds go. So you wanna, if you want to see that, you can see that. We want to be as transparent as possible. If you have any questions at all about our finances, talk to our treasurer, treasurer at bread.church. He loves your questions. He can answer them in ways that actually make sense. I can answer them with figures that aren't real. Uh, now, hopefully, it goes without saying, all your giving should not be to the church. Find things that you love, that are exciting to you. Other people might find them barking mad, but you love them. Give to those. It's great to give to things that really inspire you and excite you. But there is a huge cognitive dissonance to not giving to the church to which you belong. It doesn't have to be this church. Just find one. It's like you're stepping in through the door with one foot but keeping another foot behind. It will always keep you feeling a little bit splayed. It will do you a huge amount of good to give in lots of different ways, but particularly to your sense of belonging and being part of this church. So I was praying, as I am paid to do, and I felt like God say this, which I've debated about saying to you, but I feel like I should because I felt like God saying, I don't want this to be manipulative in any way, but I felt like God say, go big. And um, we all have different ideas about what big is. I would have liked him to say, go big, or just don't say anything at all. <laughs> but I felt like God say, go big. So I wanted to put a figure in front of your mind of monthly giving, increasing monthly giving. Firstly, could we get 30-plus people to give, to start giving? That's quite a big number, given how many people are here. That's 30 extra people to start giving. And two, here's the number that I came up with a month, 7,500. Might seem small, might seem big, 7,500 a month. That's the number that I felt would be fine. I felt like God say, nah. So I'm just telling you, I was mentioning this to someone before, and they said, either this is a lot of faith or it's zero faith. I can't quite decide. Anyway, my number, 7,500, what I felt like God saying was 10,000, adding 10,000 to our monthlies. I've never, ever regretted giving money. Not once. Um, I'm just saying that because um, when we do give, it raises our faith. Faith is the magic with God. It shows him that we're serious. And I just want to suggest to you that if you're going, wait a second, listen to the voice of the Spirit. Not my voice. Don't listen to my voice. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. What's he saying to you? So let's just take a moment now. 30 plus people. Seven and a half, ten a month. Why don't you in your own mind just ask God to speak to you? If you're already giving, you might want to revise your giving. You might think, uh, I need to up it or I might need to down it. Either way is fine. Just do what God's showing you to do. Let's pray, shall we? I want to say again, 
please don't feel manipulated. I do not want to manipulate anyone. I ju- it's between you and God, as is always these things. You and him, that's it. So listen to him. He loves you. It'll be all right. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the extraordinary things that you have done. We thank you that you teach us what it is to be people whose hearts are completely changed. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill us and you would speak to us and show us what you want to do.